it was in 2021, just reading this quant research paper I found that was talking about this quantitative strategy going back since 1928, nearly 100 years, a sort of modified version of it's become the, the quant-based flagship on the site. But it's just this really cool strategy with, you know, decades of performance history uh, doing really well. It like beat the market handily over this whole period. And there's just no easy way to invest in that. This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are trying to change the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in the founders you believe in. Now with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. If you're searching for entertaining, educational, and inspirational content about startup investing, this show is for you. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and today on Seeking Startups, we have Thomas Stewart, the CEO of Quantbase, Samoa Patra, the CIO, and Alan Calderwood, the CTO. These three co-founders are building Quantbase, a high-risk automated investment platform available for anyone to use. So far, they have over 5,000 users on their waitlist and have raised over $400,000 from prominent investors like First Round Capital's Dorm Room Fund. With previous startup founding experience and one exit under Thomas's belt, this team believes they have what it takes to disrupt the risk asset market. Listen to this fascinating talk to hear about these founders' stories and learn how their backgrounds led them to create Quantbase. Before we get started, I just want to thank all of my fellow podcast subscribers. Thank you for returning week after week listening to the show. I really appreciate all of your support. If you would like to help grow this podcast, please feel free to leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family and friends. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is only for informational and entertainment purposes. This is not financial advice and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now let's get started. So, uh, Sam, Thomas, Alan, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm really excited to understand uh, what QuantBase is all about, uh, your backgrounds, everything uh, like that. Before we get into your stories, though, Let's get to know more about the company. So I would like you guys to first pitch what QuantBase is all about to maybe a potential investor that's interested in investing. In a nutshell, it's a, uh, a quantitative hedge fund for everybody else. So that means is we just make passive, automated, high risk, but high upside investment strategies and algorithms. You can passively get really great returns and supercharge your portfolio. We target mainly retail investors, um, and what we find is it tends to be like tech and finance workers, you know, these upwardly mobile young professionals who are, you know, looking to cut years off waiting for retirement, who are looking to supercharge their retirement. And at this point, we're SEC registered. Uh, we've raised a half million dollar pre-seed round, and we're just getting out the door and launching. So what's the specific problem that QuantBase is solving? You said that it's supercharging people's portfolios. Um, can you explain more about that? Yeah, the kind of seed we're built around is high-risk investing in general is just hard to do. So it tends to require a lot of time and skill primarily. You know, the people we've talked to are doing some crazy things from juggling Excel spreadsheets, trying to run their own investment strategies. You know, anything out of the ordinary, anything beyond just buy and hold the S&P, you know, people doing leverage in their portfolio, people who are trying new trading strategies to use cryptocurrency along with NFTs, 
uh, and fine art and wine and all these other alternatives in a very smart, optimized way, it's just hard. It's a lot of time spent. It requires a lot of skill. Uh, essentially, everyone has to be their own financial professional. And so we do is we do that work for you. So we make automated portfolios, just like Betterment or Vanguard. They're basically ETFs uh, that you can just put your money in and get access to you know, leverage strategies with decades of backtest history and performance data to automated cryptocurrency indices that are optimized using, you know, research papers published by quant firms like HUR, just give you all the same returns without doing any of the work. I really appreciate that, Thomas. Um, I'd like to go to Sam and let's say I'm a potential customer and um, I would really like to, to start investing on your platform. How does that work? What's the process look like for me to, to do that? Sure. As a user, it's really, really straightforward. You know, you click sign up, you give us your some of your information uh, and then connect your bank account. And then literally you you get a, a list of the funds that you want to invest in. You click invest, you put the amount that you want to invest in, and that's all. On the back end, we do a lot of kind of the heavy lifting for you. We connect to different brokerages. We handle kind of the, the tax, the, the KYC kind of information, data processing. Uh, we also handle all the rebalancing and kind of all of that asset heavy stuff on the back end. So as a user, you get to see the funds you're invested in and the returns. Perfect. Okay. I see how that works. And then how do you guys make money from this? So uh, right now our uh, kind of business model is based on assets under management. So uh, we charge uh, 0.94% on, uh, on all the assets that a user might have. Okay. I see. When we're talking about you know, trading securities, there's obviously a, a security aspect of it. Where is the money uh, held, first of all? And second of all, how about the social security numbers, uh, bank information? How is all that handled uh, for, for maximum safety? From like a security perspective, it's, you know, all the, the, the kind of encryption 256-bit level uh, that uh, the banks use, right? So we, had, we uh, think about security really, really, uh, really, really carefully. And that's one of the, the main mandates for us. And then the especially sensitive information like social security number, bank account connections, we don't even store that on our servers, right? We have third party providers that, you know, their, their main goal is to be holding on to safeguarding and uh, transmitting uh, this information. I see. And then kind of uh, on the on the securities and assets custody level, uh, we don't actually handle any of the users, you know, cash ourselves, right? And so what that means is we have a, a backend provider that when a user invests cash into Quantbase, uh, that's held with their broker partner when they invest into certain securities or cryptocurrencies. That actually happens kind of off our servers. And what that means from like a viability perspective is even if like a, like a young company like OnPace goes out of business, our users' cash and all their assets are secure. And who's that broker partner? We use Alpaca Securities for securities and then we use Alpaca Crypto for our cryptocurrencies. And then in terms of like the automation, so Alan, whenever I let's say use uh, QuantPace and I say I want this strategy. How does the backend work? So because Alpaca holds all of our clients' equities and cryptocurrencies, uh, we send the orders to them, but we uh, build out the proportions, the dollar amounts, the quantities. So building the fund, that's us. Executing the trades, that's Alpaca. Okay, perfect. And I know that Thomas mentioned something about like 
uh, focusing on the retail investor. Can you talk about how you're able to to make that happen? Because when I think of hedge funds, I think about um, accredited investors having access to that. How are you guys doing this in a way that non-accredited investors have access? We're utilizing the same strategies, the same uh, thinking about volatility and risk and returns as hedge funds, but we're not classified as a hedge fund. Okay. This allows us to, uh, you know, optimize and, and apply those same kind of strategies and features without having the barrier in the way that is accreditation. So it's just the way you've structured yourself, basically. Exactly. One of the things I'll add to that is like, as an investment advisor, we're, uh, we're considered fiduciaries, which means that we need to think about our clients' interests in mind. And so when they sign up, they, you know, they, they give us their information, but then the, there's also a whole personalization step where they tell us what their goals are, what kind of risks they're looking for, uh, and what they're trying to get out of a site like QuantBase. And then we use that to recommend them certain funds. How about the distribution um, of this product? How do you plan on gaining new customers? Yeah, that's that's something we're still honing in on. Uh, we've had nearly half of our users come just from word of mouth, just talking to each other. So uh, we've been working on supercharging that with our own referral scheme. At the same time, um, we're backed by a cadre of some pretty awesome investors, including Austin Hankwitz, who's a, a Finfluencer, this, this sort of new breed of influencers on TikTok and elsewhere uh, with large devoted audiences talking about stocks and investment advice. So a lot of our acquisition has been directly through uh, sort of brand affiliation with newsletters, with content creators, uh, and going that route. Let's talk about that traction. You said you have some people on the wait list. Um, how many people do you have on that wait list right now? Yeah. So uh, on our wait list, we have about 5,000 people. Uh, and we've been launching this last two months, bringing people off the wait list for about eight weeks, I want to say. Before we get into the stories, I think another interesting thing to bring up um, would be market timing. As we know, in 2021, the retail investor was uh, strong. And now with 2022, uh, the markets seem to be in a, a precarious position. How do you think QuantBase is going to be able to maneuver this new uh, market uh, dynamic? You know, one of my favorite things to talk about about just market dynamics in 2021 is our Wall Street Best portfolio. So uh, I don't know if you had the chance to check that out, but that's one track the sentiment analysis of users uh, in, in, on Reddit's Wall Street bets. Uh, it, it's still live. While it was doing really, really good in 2021, when there's kind of all this market frenzy and just interest on Wall Street bets, uh, it's been underperforming uh, for the past, I want to say like, you know, five or six months, right? So that's exactly what you're saying here. When we think about the funds that we offer, there's uh, there's quantitative kind of algorithms like uh, our leveraged in and out portfolio or our, our leveraged flagship. And what that does is it cycles between your safe assets like bonds and then leveraged uh, leveraged like uh, S&P. So what it does is in uh, in good times, it's supposed to be leveraged in the S&P. In kind of uncertain times, it's supposed to be in bonds. And then we've got kind of a, a second class of funds that we offer, uh, just index funds. And kind of our, our take on this is that you know, there ought to be index funds like the S&P for the next class of assets, right? So like, there's not really a, a well-agreed upon index fund for crypto. There certainly isn't one for NFTs. And then what we're seeing is just like a proliferation of like new asset classes coming out. And we want to be the first to, to, give a, to give retail investors like super easy passive exposure to them. You really focus on being a risk forward uh, platform, right? Where it's all about the risk. 
I guess the question is, during this new market regime, are you preparing for a, a more difficult time, right? Do you have the runway prepared to uh, weather out the storm before we start getting back into more retail uh, in interest? Yeah, yeah. So we have nearly uh, two years of runway at the moment. Um, and the way we kind of think about it, this is smart high risk. You know, it's a quantitative hedge fund, which means, you know, the hedge fund part's the high risk, the quantitative part's the smart part. Uh, and, you know, in, in 2020 and 2021, when it's all bullish, it's all exciting, uh, that's when we can really lean into the high risk aspect of it. But in times like now, that's when we really lean into the quantitative time. You know, when when people on Robinhood are are seeing that they can't really play it on their own and they're getting screwed in the market, they want a solution that's the same sort of high risk that's taking advantage of, of these swings and to really exploit the power of the market, uh, but doing so intelligently and smartly and adjusting to the market conditions without them having to be investment analysts you know, making all those decisions themselves. So you have kind of a two-pronged approach. Whenever times are good, you have the, the the tool for that. And then when times get a little bit more difficult, you also have a tool for that. Perfect. Well, that's a great overview, I think, of what QuantBase is all about. Let's really get into your guys' backgrounds because, you know, you're the, you're the ones that are creating this. You're going to make this happen. And I would like to start with Thomas. So Thomas, you grew up in a military family. It sounds like you did a lot of moving. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, yeah. So... You know, it's, it's kind of uh, two sides to the coin where on one side, I think it was really cool that I got to live in a lot of different places from, uh, you know, three years in Italy, a stint in Germany, uh, you know, Texas and New Mexico and all over the, the Southwest, the United States. That was, that was kind of the awesome part of it. You know, the downside was really, yeah, like, I think it's always been a hard question when somebody asks, like, where are you from kind of thing? And I'm like, well, the, these last few years, I've been in like Virginia. Uh, but before that, I was in Texas and I was born here. And now I, I've kind of looked back on it like overall, I think it was a really empowering experience. Like I feel like I can move between different environments and scenarios uh, much more readily uh, having all that experience in different places. Right. You were exposed to so many different cultures and, and places. How do you think that kind of impacted your interests? Um, I think meeting new people was a big part of it. Uh, in Italy, my best friend was named Mario, which is kind of <laughs> funny. I had a lot of great friends in Texas and, and New Mexico. Uh, so just meeting the people in the area and just kind of getting immersed in, in where I was living for, you know, one to two years was, was always really fun and partaking in, in whatever the local kind of fun things to do were. When you were growing up, you also enjoyed video games and then eventually you got into mathematics. Video games make sense, but mathematics at a young age, I don't know, you know, how, how did you get into that? Yeah, I, I really don't know what it was. It was like up until maybe eighth grade, I think I was a, sort of a middling student. Like I was in the um, gifted programs and, you know, put in advanced reading levels, but I wasn't really like excited to do so. It was just like happenstance, but like a light switch changed or something in ninth grade uh, where I suddenly became very engaged with mathematics and I'd like get linear algebra textbooks for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my mom was always very confused. And yeah, like I'd come home each day and I remember just working on this uh, this workbook of like 1500 calculus problems, uh, just going through it each day. Yeah, I really don't know. I really don't know what happened there. I think I got bit by something. Or... That's super interesting. So whenever you were like, you know, doing these math problems, was it just like pure joy? Was it curiosity? What do you think um, just made you so interested in math? I think 
it's the same thing that makes me really like startups now is it's just it's an ability to be in touch with reality in like a really fundamental way. Like I went from math to really liking physics because it's sort of you can predict the future, you know, if you have all the right information. Uh, and startups just feel like it's a more direct way of doing that. Like you can build the future now, just as you can in physics, you can construct models and understand the world. Uh, if you understand the world, you can apply that and you can make an amazing, you know, company that creates a lot of value for people. So I think it was the same common thread throughout all that was just, it's a really cool way to be in touch with the world and create. When we come back, you'll get to hear how Thomas started to work at a particle physics lab at the age of 15. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in QuantBase. QuantBase is currently raising up to $250,000 at a $6.75 million valuation cap on WeFunder. After the early bird terms expire, the valuation cap will be raised to $8 million. The current minimum investment amount is $100 per investor. Funding is currently open but is scheduled to close on April 30th, 2023. But if they hit their maximum funding limit before then, you'll be directed to their waitlist. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes below where you can find a link to their funding page. You, you mentioned physics. Um, you worked at a particle physics lab. Now, was this in high school? Yeah, yeah. I started working there when I was 15. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's so funny how you, you know, you just kind of nonchalantly say that you were working at a particle physics lab at 15. I, I, I just, I just want to learn more. Just tell me more about that whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, um, uh, it was right around when I started visiting colleges, uh, and I visited UVA, uh, where I ended up going university of Virginia and they sort of have this, this time where you can, you can go just free time, go visit classes, go visit clubs. I like looked on the the list of classes going on and I went straight to like the hardest sounding physics class. It was like quantum physics too, uh, taken by like grad students. And I just went in there and, and sat in on the class. Um, and I maybe understood like the first five minutes of it and they were like laying out everything. And then the rest of it just completely went over my head. But by the end of it, uh, I just talked to a few of the students there and some of them suggested like, hey, you should just reach out to some professors and uh, see if you can work with some of them. And, you know, if you have this, this strong interest and I reached out to maybe 30 or 40 physics professors at UVA and one of them came back to me and uh, well, two of them got back to me. One of them came back and said like, yeah, let me look into this. Uh, if it'd be okay for you as a high school student to do this, you know, we kind of went back and forth for a week and I just, you know, reached out again and said, hey, uh, any update? And he said, like, you need to give me time to figure this out or something <laughs> like that. He got really mad. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm not, I'm done with this guy. Uh, and then the other guy um, who reached out was like, yeah, come, come for the summer and, and work here. It's amazing that that professor gave you that um, uh, the opportunity. And so what were you doing? What were some of the things that you were playing around with? The first stuff they had me with, um, was a new telescope and uh, it's essentially a muon telescope. So it wasn't like an opti optical telescope is detecting these little particles called muons because uh, that's that's the they were part of this big collaboration at uh, the University of Virginia with a bunch of other universities on this new uh, particle accelerator and they need to detect like how many muons are coming through to get a baseline um, because this this research they were doing if it proved correct would like break 
the the fundamental understanding of physics. It'd be like this huge breakthrough. Uh, and so they needed this cool telescope. And so they just had me writing programs and see to sort of simulate the, uh, the angular acceptance of this telescope. Basically, what we should expect the muon count to be from different angles, viewing angles of the telescope. So it's just a summer of, of writing C programs, uh, simulating telescopes. That's fantastic. So you were part of this particle physics lab, and then um, you were also in high school. But your your high school uh, career was was quite short, actually. How were you able to do that? It was like like I said, when that that light switch changed at ninth grade, um, where I think like the first week or two of ninth grade, I went to my guidance counselor and just said like, "How can I skip two grades and graduate early?" And at first, it, it was just absurd, but we worked at a program where I could do like like my eleventh and twelfth grade classes at the same time and do some over the summer and on the weekends. Uh, and just knock it all out. And so you eventually graduated high school and you went to the University of Virginia. And what did you study? So started studying math and physics. Um, and then about two years in, after, you know, working in the particle physics lab for a few years, then I came into the lab at a, like the middle of the night and there was like a, a postdoc, like working on some research at like 2 a.m. And it was like a revelation I was just like, I don't want to be doing this, you know, well into my 30s, like not even a professor yet. Because I went into physics with the expectation of creating cool things, understanding the world and creating models. Like that's an old story for physics. It's a lot more bureaucratic now. Hmm. Uh, it's a lot more like administrative. And so at that point, it was just like, I, I don't want to do physics anymore. That's what, you know, the end result of this is. And so I switched from math and physics to math and economics with a minor in physics uh, with the the plan just, I'm just going to go into finance and banking, make a bunch of money. And then when I'm you know older, I'll quit and I'll start my own physics lab where I'll do my own physics that I want to do. And it just morphs over time into, I just want to work on startups. Let's talk about that. So at what point did you kind of get bit by the, the startup bug, right? At what point did you uh, start getting into the ecosystem. Hmm. I don't. I don't quite remember. I remember the first sort of projects I started working on. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing to think about now, but it was this uh, this stupid blog website uh, I called like askforscience.com or something like that, and it was just going to be little blogs of like interesting science questions. Like I, I wrote an entire blog post for it. It was like a, an in depth explanation of how we could beat climate change with nuclear weapons. But I wrote like one blog post and I posted it and like I got no visitors, obviously, because it's like random website in the middle of nowhere. I was like, why am I not getting any visitors? I put up something interesting. Right. Yeah, that was just like my first attempt at a startup. And I realized very quickly that, yeah, like it, there's a lot more into it and you got to, you know, create something interesting and valuable for people. And I wasn't doing that. Uh, and so it was just, ideas from there that that spiraled and spiraled until yeah eventually working on quad base right let's talk about kind of the the steps between there though so you did uh start a company called baza can you talk about that what was that what was that company about and, and kind of why did you create it yeah so it started off being something totally different but it morphed into essentially like local subreddits for social businesses so 
um, in Charlottesville, there's a lot of social businesses like breweries and like game stores and stuff. These, these kind of businesses that run events and have like an active community. And so it's supposed to be like a way for, you know, a business can have a page on, on Baza and their sort of customers could engage with them and talk to them. Uh, the business could talk to their customers. The customers could talk to each other and post their own content. Uh, and the idea being, you know, you keep an engaged community of, uh, of customers and you can post deals and advertisements and stuff. Interesting. What ended up happening with that company? What did you do with it? Yeah, so I was plotting along with it. Uh, I had a few thousand users at like 60 cities in the United States. And then this Irish company uh, called Scopiri sent me a message just saying they wanted to buy it. Uh, they do something similar, uh, these sort of communities or organizations, except for um, like nonprofits. And they do it like a hundred countries. Uh, by then I was kind of like, kind of bored of the idea. I was pivoting around and couldn't find something interesting with it. I was just like, yeah, okay. Let's, let's just close it and move on. Gotcha. So at 19, you started your first company and then you sold it. What was that experience like? Was it remarkable for you? Like, did you feel like you really, you know, um, were part of this, you know, this ecosystem and the startup world? It was definitely cool. It was the coolest thing I'd ever done up to that point, at least in my opinion. But I, I definitely didn't feel like I was part of any kind of like startup ecosystem. I Up to that point, my whole shtick was like, if I had all the skills, I can just do it, do it myself. Like I can just build this whole company myself and I can bring on employees and stuff later. But the whole idea of co-founders, like, you know, what value can I get out of a co-founder kind of thing, uh, which I, you know, quickly learned is, is completely wrong. Um, and you know, I'm like a 180 where I'm like, yeah, you know, relying on a startup ecosystem and, and other people and it's really so powerful. Uh, but up to that point, yeah, it was totally the opposite. Awesome. I think we're going to uh, leave it off there for now and we're going to move on to Sam. So Sam, you know, it's interesting because you kind of had um, a similar experience, which was moving around a lot whenever you were young. And then eventually your family settled in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Um, can you talk about your childhood? And specifically, can you talk about how investing was part of, of your childhood? Sure. Yeah. So I was born in Chicago, lived there for 30 days. Uh, then I think we moved around, we went to like West Virginia, Vermont. Like, uh, I think we had like a brief stint in Boston, New Hampshire, and then Virginia, uh, by the time I turned five, um, growing up, my mom was first like, uh, like a homemaker. Uh, she kind of spent time, uh, with myself and my little sister. Uh, and then she went into sales. And my dad was like a, like a consultant at a, at a tech firm. So from a really young age, I had been exposed to like, to tech, uh, like before I even known what like the financial markets or anything were. But I think uh, around the uh, first or second grade, my dad started getting into like the, the stock market and all. And I remember like probably every single night, uh, he had Jim Cramer's Mad Money on. And so like my childhood's peppered with like, random sound bites of like Jim Carrey being like, sell, sell, sell. Like, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> then uh, I think middle school, uh, sixth grade, I made my first like stock trade. It was in like a, one of those stock market simulations, one of those games. Uh, it, it was some uh, one day thing within, in an e-com class. It, it was a lot of fun. It kind of gave me this 
notion of like upward mobility. You know, you can use your 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 merits. Uh, you know, if, if you can pick the right stocks, you can make a lot of money. And then uh, I think uh, later on, seventh or eighth grade, I made like a like a stock market club or like a finance club in middle school. And we did that same kind of thing. Uh, we 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 ran the stock market simulation. We had like a uh, competition. I think it was like the thirty or forty of us, and like it was really for bragging rights. And I remember making this trade on some some penny stock and lost all my money in the in like one of the first five trades. Uh, so that, that kind of uh, exposed me to the idea of uh, of risk and volatility. And um, kind of from there, uh, in high school, I got a lot more serious about investing. Uh, I'd always kind of been uh, between tech and finance. Uh, wrote my first line of code, I think when I was eight. Uh, it was like this JavaScript program where I made rock, paper, scissors, plus 17 other elements. I think in high school, I I realized that I liked finance more just because like my, my dad was always like, uh, saw him like, you know, check out this stock or like, you know, check out this uh, this episode of, <laughs> of Mad Money. Um, I think junior year of high school, I, I I got serious. I started reading uh, Ben Graham and David Dodd, kind of all those classics, right? Like uh, security analysis, uh, the intelligent investor. That's really what uh, what brought me to to want to do investing uh, when I got into college. Right, right. That's great. So this was kind of your hobby. You were interested in the stock market. You were learning from your dad, but you're also being a very serious student. Why were you so serious? Like, what was your goal and what did you think of school at that time and what it could lead to? Uh, yeah, I think up until like the, the second semester of college, I was like a, like an A plus student um, before like uh, where I ended up essentially dropping out for quant base. I think uh, a lot of it's been instilled in me by my parents, right? They're, uh, they're immigrants, they're first gen immigrants. And so the idea has always been get good grades, become a, not necessarily a cog in the machine, but like, you know, getting integrated into in, into this world where you can where you can live a good life and uh, give back to the the folks that uh, that made it so you you could get here, right? Like my grandpa when he was like uh, like my dad tells me the story all the time, like when he's trying to get me to to be humble and all. But like uh, my grandpa's parents died when he was like ten years old, and he was the the oldest uh, of, of four children, and so essentially he was wow like a, like a huge burden was put on his shoulders in this uh, kind of farm in the in the middle of india and so he always instilled in my dad like you know work hard uh so you can secure a a good environment for your for your children and your family and my dad kind of grew up with that mantra and that's essentially what brought him to come to the united states that's kind of what's what's what affected my early life thinking of like school as a as a ticket to a good uh, to a good life interesting so is that immigrant mentality that kind of shaped you uh, along the way Let's talk about your college experience. So you also went to the University of Virginia um, and um, you studied economics and computer science. Is that right? Yeah, doubled in uh, econ, computer science and uh, minor in technology. Okay, so the, the economics part makes sense. Um, what, what drew you to computer science though? I wrote in uh, all of my college essays, you know, I'm going to college because I want to start a fintech startup. You know, I knew that uh, I had this interest in uh, in finance and financial structure, market theory, all that fun stuff. But I knew that whatever I wanted to do, it was going to be, I wanted it to be scalable. I wanted it to, to be something that like, you know, everybody in the world could use. I knew that I needed, uh, needed tech for it. And it was uh, like coding was something I was pretty good at growing up. So I just figured I'd get better. And so you had this idea to, to create this fintech startup. 
eventually you did create a startup. Um, what was that startup and, and, and why did you create it? God, yeah. Um, so that startup, uh, I started my first year of college. It was called Universal. And that's Dutch for the Universal Stock Exchange. Okay. Um, and so I think the the idea that uh, that brought this about was, I think uh, before my second semester started, I was like, hmm, I wonder what like the best class for me to take is. And then I was like, what's the most convoluted way I could like, uh, like I could, I could get the answer to this. I created a financial market. Uh, essentially the, the assets in that financial market were classes. And the idea was, you know, college students would, would trade tokens of these classes. And from there get the, the highest price classes would be the ones that the university students thought of as the most valuable and the lowest price would be the ones that people didn't really, uh, didn't find valuable. So I launched it. Got about uh, fifteen thousand hits uh, in the first day. Wow! Uh, and it essentially it was, it was doing pretty well for for a couple of weeks. I got a, a bunch of really cool insights from it, but I ended up just kind of fluttering out. Uh, I had a, a brief blur uh, with like uh, bringing on a co-founder, but at that point the, the project was was sunsetting. But you know, it awakened two things in me: one, the kind of hunger to do something like that again. And then to the the hunger to stay in the like in the in the financial markets, and that was I think my my first taste of building something that was like tangential to the to the crypto world. Hey, I just wanted to share an update about the Seeking Startups roadmap. Phase one was to create more transparency in the equity crowdfunding market by providing you with exclusive founder interviews. With phase one moving at full speed, I'd like to announce phase two, the Seeking Startups community a community built by the crowd for the crowd, a place where you can learn, share due diligence, and connect with other equity crowdfunding investors. I would love for you to be a part of this exciting new group, so I welcome you to join today. Click the link in the description below to get started, and I'll see you there. Before we get to Alan, I would like to ask you a little bit more about your corporate career, I guess. And so you worked for McIntyre Investment Institute. Can you talk about what you were doing and, and how you got into that? Yeah, so before that, I was uh, was an intern at like a, at an insurance firm and kind of got into the whole automation and uh, AI side of things. But at McIntyre, uh, essentially that was a, an investment firm. The investment philosophy they followed was uh, just value investing, which is buying good stocks that other people think are are bad, and then making money when other people realize that they're good. And so there, I really honed. The, the way I look at stocks uh, and the way I look at kind of uh, market psychology, the idea that like, you know, you, you never want to invest in something just because Mr. Market thinks it's good when, uh, and you never want to sell something because uh, Mr. Market thinks it's bad. Uh, there, I kind of climbed through the ranks pretty quickly. Uh, I think a year after I joined, I was uh, the uh, portfolio manager. And uh, during my stint there, uh, you know, I made a, made a couple of picks uh, that, that did really well. You know, truth be told, it, it was hard to do badly uh, in the second half of 2020, uh, just because the, the market was going straight up. But you know, some of my picks were uh, were beating the benchmark pretty uh, pretty handily. And then from there uh, there on, I got a I got some interest from some hedge funds in Charlottesville uh, and in Virginia. And essentially, if it wasn't for uh, for me meeting Thomas and Allen and starting Pompeys, I'd probably be uh, interning or, or working at some of these uh, these hedge funds. All right, so let's move on to Alan now. So Alan, you know, just like Thomas and, and some, I, I think this is pretty crazy. You also moved a lot whenever you were young. Talk about your experience and, and how that also impacted you and, and um, your childhood. 
So uh, similar to Thomas, uh, both my parents were in the military uh, in the National Guard Army. And we moved around a lot. Uh, I think for the first couple of years of my life, I lived in uh, Georgia and then we moved to California for a year or so uh, near the Mojave Desert. And then after that, we moved to uh, to the Netherlands for a short period of time. Uh, and I think it was around when I was five or six or so. Um, my parents split up and, uh, my mom and I, and my little sister moved back to Virginia and, uh, and then we kind of stayed in Virginia. Uh, I say, I stayed in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is kind of near, kind of close to DC until eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, moved to Richmond, Virginia. And I would say, yeah, like, uh, yeah, moving around is, is kind of interesting because my mom, for the most part, you know, she had to work really hard to raise two kids and uh i think around when i was in elementary school uh she was like a receptionist uh at some company and then her boss comes and says oh hey like uh we need people to like learn how to program like would you be interested in taking this course and so my yeah my mom took this course uh paid for by the company it was a great opportunity for her and uh and then she got into programming and so i think yeah from that point on it was uh our household was fairly tech fluent, I think. So similar to Sam, how his dad uh, influenced him or at least introduced him to the stock market and investing, it sounds like your mom um, had an influence in you and specifically getting into the tech world. So when you were young, you enjoyed gaming, but at what point did you start really getting more interested into coding and things like that? I would say around like ninth grade-ish, uh, when I moved from Fredericksburg to Richmond, um, we moved, I would say the, the school I went to in Fredericksburg was probably n- not, not that good. It was a little rough around the edges. I got in fights all the time in middle school. It was a pretty, it was a pretty crazy place. Uh, but in, in, in Richmond, it was, it was a bit nicer and it had a robotics club. They had programming classes, uh, and th- those sorts of things. So I would say, yeah, around that time is is when I got interested in programming. It was also kind of the height for me was it was like the uh, the height of the I would say Android versus iPhone wars and everything. So it was like, oh, like Android is better than Apple, whatever. And so uh, it was still also very early, like very, very early days of it all. So uh, like I had a smartphone and I was like, oh, how can I, you know, like write apps for this phone, right? Yeah. And so I got uh, really into Android programming. And I remember there's a there was this channel, the new Boston, the the guy who owns it, his name's Bucky. But he had this like 200 video series on like writing Android apps and each one was like 15 minutes. And I watched like, I think at least 150 of them and just like self-teaching myself how to write Android apps. That coupled with classes in high school and robotics and everything just kind of that's where I picked it all up. I think that's really interesting from the, the aspect that you are kind of self-taught. I think all of you, Thomas, Sam, you all, all have a um, curiosity to learn uh, and, and learn learn through doing. And so why do you think you're like that, Alan? Why, do you, why are you curious and trying to learn and do things on your own? If I'm totally honest, I think it has to do with video games. I'm like... Uh an extremely competitive person, like super, super competitive. I, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely bored to death by like single player games. I only play multiplayer games because I just want to compete with other people and like, uh, 
and, and do whatever. And so when you're competing at like really high levels and stuff, you have to start asking yourself, like, what do I need to change? What do I need to do differently to like to beat this person or to just play better on average and all that? So it, it requires like a special, in my opinion, like problem solving mindset. So you get into program, you get into robotics in high school, and then eventually um, you get to Virginia Commonwealth University and you start studying computer science. Um, what was that experience like? Like what, what were some of the things you were part of and um, doing? Yeah, so actually, uh, I kind of started out similar to Thomas, where I studied math. So when I was in high school, I was in a very, like, extremely accelerated math program uh, to the point that, like, I took Calc 2 in 11th grade and um, differential equations in my, my senior year. But I took them at the community college because my school didn't offer them. And then when I started school at VCU, I was in linear algebra with a bunch of, like, juniors and seniors I had actually a very deep love for math and I still actually really, really love math. It's, 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 it's again, just another one of those things that just requires an intense amount of problem solving. I remember doing homework till like two or 3 AM, just like standing in front of a whiteboard, like trying to work out a proof. It was just, uh, there's something about it that was just so exciting to me. It was just like, oh, there's this problem. I really have to crack it. I really have to like work through it, figure out what it is. But then I would say in my junior year, or my third year of college, uh, I saw some of my friends who, because I has I was kind of accelerated, my friends were seniors and they were looking for grad programs, and uh, and they were having a really tough time like finding the like, a, like finding a good program uh, that would fund them and like pay for their research and stuff. And uh, up until that point, I was definitely like a BC student. Like I was not like an studious person, maybe from playing too many video games. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I, you know, I looked at it and I was like, OK, there's probably not a future for me in math because I'm not I'm not straight A, a straight A student. And uh, and looking at my seniors who had better grades than me and are struggling, you know, that's just more evidence. Right. So. Uh, but I'd always been interested in programming. I don't, I'd been, I'd, at that point, I'd been programming for like seven years. Uh, and it was mostly just hobby stuff. So I took some computer science classes because I was like, oh, I need a minor anyway. I'll take a, I'll get a computer science minor. And, um, and then from there, just took one class and I was like, what am I doing? This, this is what I really should be doing right now. Like, this is like, I'm so good at this. Like, uh, obviously computer science has its roots in math. So it already had like a head start kind of an understanding it and everything. Yeah. So from that point I had, I was already a junior, right. And, and I was about to start my senior year. So I just, I took summer classes. I had to drive like an hour to like Northern Virginia or an hour and a half to Northern Virginia to like take my classes. And I was like working jobs in Northern Virginia and in Richmond, like, uh, and just an insane amount of hustle. Like, uh, and I was able to graduate and finish computer science in, in two years. Wow. That's impressive. So you mentioned, um, you had some jobs while you were uh, in college. And I asked you a question, um, earlier, which was about uh, your career and, and some of the most you know, impactful jobs that you've had. And and you mentioned being a pizza delivery guy. I thought that was just the most interesting answer. Um, and so can you talk about, you know, why that stood out to you? Yeah, I worked a lot of jobs. Like uh, in high school, I did, I bus tables at Outback. I've tutored kids. I've worked in like a bunch of different tutoring scenarios. I've, I've been a math TA for like, uh, like algebra courses at the college level and stuff like that. But delivering pizzas was definitely like 
it's just it's just so much fun. It's just an immense amount of fun. I would say all these jobs have like a problem solving aspect to them. Uh, but there's something that's like, I don't know, really calculating about delivering pizzas. You know, the the manager hands you three orders and he says, OK, go deliver these. And you've got to calculate, OK, what's the best route to do them? And what's like, uh, how do I get there fast enough? And, uh, you know, how do I plan and say, oh, I'm out front, but really I'm two minutes away because it takes them that long to walk to the door and just like, you know, all this all this fun stuff. But uh Across even in that job and like working at Outback and Glory Days and these other restaurants, you kind of meet a different uh, group of people, which I didn't really like interact with a lot like in school or in high school or something where it's like just like normal everyday people and they're working these jobs and it's like their full time job. And uh, I, I like to think of them as like our our like our retail investors, like these are the people that uh they just have gone down a different path than than uh than me and it's a treacherous world out there i feel like there are some things like robin hood for instance it's like it does it has done a lot to actually democratize investing and make it like a really easy to access some things but i would say it's like uh almost like giving users like uh, a drawer of sharp knives in a way where it's like okay yeah like for absolutely like no effort i can you know, buy weekly spy puts, you know, and uh, that are like have these, you know, high, uh, they're, they're pretty expensive. And then they quickly go to zero, right? And it's, uh, there's so many things in the stock market that are risky, right? And so it's like, it's helping them and helping like those real people I've met in my life who they have interest in investing and they have interest in growing their own wealth in a safe and responsible way. I didn't meet those people when I worked at Google. I didn't meet those people like in school. I met them when I was delivering pizzas. I'm not sure if most people when they're delivering pizzas are thinking about all these complicated ways to, to get to the right routes. But I mean, you know, everyone has their process. So I think that's super fascinating. Um, you did mention that you you worked at Google. And I think it's important that we, we talk a little bit about your experience there. First of all, how did how did you get into Google? I mean, it's kind of challenging. So how did you how did you first do that? Like I said, when I was in my third year of undergrad, I started computer science. And from that point forward, it was just like an insane hustle to graduate like as fast as possible because I didn't want to, you know, stay stay there forever and just take on a ton of debt and and like drag my feet on it. Um, so luckily, because I'd already done math, the school part of computer science was like pretty easy. And because I had programming experience, the like practical part of computer science was also like pretty easy for me. So I spent a ton of time practicing leak code problems where it's basically like uh, just like small little contained problems that are like focused on, you know, basically proving like, oh, can you can you code and can you like get through these like little exercises? They're basically like little computer science math exercises. And I spent a ton of time doing that, doing hackathons, making friends in the computer science and just networking with people who also had a similar passion. And yeah, if you do that for two years, you develop a very unique skill of uh, acing the Google interviews. So, <laughs> uh, so that's kind of how it went. So I was actually the first undergrad student from VCU computer science to get hired at Google. Wow. Uh, but still, uh, there have definitely been a lot more students at VCU who followed in my steps now, but uh, it was a lot of practicing those problems and just hustling, 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 hustling. 
Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. But before we hear how QuantBase was started, I thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about the company. The company is currently located in New York City. QuantBase has over 5,000 users on their waitlist. QuantBase has $90 million of AUM as soft commitments by their waitlist users. And QuantBase is a registered investment advisor. In the most recent year, QuantBase was operating pre-revenue and had a net loss of $26,203. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Now, I think we should really get into the kind of the founding story of QuantBase. And um, Thomas, could you explain how you know, everyone came together and um, how QuantBase, you know, really started. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just made me think of the Avengers for a moment, like just getting the team together kind of thing. It really started at its, its roots, you know, we're a quantitative hedge fund for everybody. And that's really how it started. It was in 2021, just reading this quant research paper I found that was talking about this quantitative strategy going back since 1928, nearly 100 years a sort of modified version of it's become the the quant-based flagship on the site. But it's just this really cool strategy with, you know, decades of performance history uh, doing really well. It like beat the market handily over this whole period. And there's just no easy way to invest in that. Uh, so I, you know, I looked around and the best you can do is you can build it yourself, which obviously requires programming skills and financial knowledge. And you have to trust your, your, coding skills and finance knowledge with a lot of your money. And uh, so that really sucks. Um, so I built out a few strategies just for myself, just to try it out uh, and then posted on Hacker News and it like shot to the top. And it was realization that, yeah, other people are also interested in this. And a few weeks after that, just kind of trying it out and, you know, talking to people and bringing more people on the site. Uh, I posted in this entrepreneurship group chat that Sam was in, uh, just looking for a co-founder, you know, just saying like, Hey, I'm working on this, this cool quantitative investing project. Uh, it seems like there's interest, you know, just curious if anyone wants to work on it with me. And a few people reached out, Sam reached out and we talked and it was just, uh, instant click really. You know, we talked about the textbooks we like reading. And I remember going to the other room after the conversation and talking to my girlfriend and I was just like, yeah, this guy's the one. It was just like, it was obvious. You know, we just have so much in common. I saw him at the time was like taking his credits at, at UVA, like pass fail. Cause he was like, I just want to find something really interesting to work on. And I want to work on that. Uh, you know, class isn't nearly as interesting to me. Uh, so yeah, we, we started working together on it. I started working at the libraries together and coffee shops and just finding anywhere we could to just work on it. And then... I want to say a few weeks after we started working together on it, Alan reached out. Um, and as I understand it, Alan, you know, obviously coming from the Richmond area, saw this neat startup and was like, oh, they're also from Richmond. Like, I, I have to reach out now. <laughs> and uh, was like, hey, like, could I join the team? And we were blown away. We were like, oh my God, it's like Google tech lead reaching out, wants to join the team. Like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, but at the time we were like, we're raising money and uh, we don't really need like tech assistance right now, but you know, like love to meet. Um, and it was a, a few months after that, after we we had raised the pre-seed round where we're now looking for an engineer and, you know, Sam and I both have coding experience, but 
it was clear we really needed to accelerate things and just reach back out to Alan. Hey, you know, this guy reached out to us months ago, you know, before we really had anything going on uh, and wanted to join the team. So hopefully he's down to jump on it now. Uh, and yeah, I think like literally an hour within, I sent that email. Alan reached back out like, heck yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's meet up and talk. So Alan, um, I'm curious. So when you first, you know, heard about Quantbase, what made you decide, hey, like, this is what I want to do. I really want to, I'm interested in this team. Like, what did you see in Thomas? What did you see in Simon and the company that made you want to, to do this? At that point, I was already working in fintech and I was on a dead set path to like start my own startup. I was like, I'll do anything. So uh, I saw these guys, I saw their site and I was like, wow, this is like, this is this is pretty scrappy effort. I looked them up. I was like, these guys are like they're in Richmond, Virginia. Like as Thomas said, I, like I've got I've got to talk to them. Like they're working on something that's totally cool, totally in my space. Like I'm ready for this. And and then you know, looking into them more, I was like, these guys are just two hustlers. Like they're they're two two guys who will do anything to get whatever done. And, and I was just like blown away by that. I was like, yes, 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 yes. I need to talk to these guys. I need to get to know them. I need to see like if there's something here like that we can do together. And then Sam, so you, you met Thomas and um, he kind of mentioned, you know, what he was working on and, and kind of uh, the idea of around Quantbase. Um, what first drew you to, you know, partnering up Sure. Yeah. So uh, when Thomas made that uh, that ask in the group chat, the first thing that hit me was like, "Damn, this dude's got ambition too." And uh, you know, he was like, "Hey, I'm applying to YC. Want to you know build a, a multi billion dollar company? Unicorn isn't enough, right? You got to get to a decacorn." Um, and so I uh, I chatted with him. I told him about how I was looking for something exactly like Quantbase, and uh, we, we chatted like Paul Graham startups, like scrappiness for uh, for about yeah twenty five minutes, and then uh, I remember uh, following up with them like you know three or four times uh, after two weeks, and I was like hey like did you end up going with someone else? And he was like no let's uh, let's you know let's chat further let's let's try out together. So we started hacking away. Um, before we even started coding, actually, we talked to about uh, I want to say like fifty to one hundred people on like from Reddit and Hacker News, just to get an idea of what we were getting into and uh, what we wanted to build. And after that, we kind of crunched some numbers. And at that point, I was like, okay, this is uh, like a user base that I'm really interested in. This is a team that I think is going to be freaking killer. And uh, just a few weeks after that, you know, Thomas and I got coffee with Alan and, you know, we kind of always knew that like we were going to reach out to him. Uh, this was going to be the team, especially because all three of us are, are from Richmond. Yeah, I mean, I love I love the the story, and and I can see why everyone kind of um, decided to to jump on board. But I'm also curious about the team dynamic um, because I mean, you do have some history, but it's not super long, right? You, like you don't go back for years and years. And so, can you kind of maybe talk about how you guys function, and like maybe even an example of how maybe there is a problem that you you guys were working on and maybe not everyone agreed on something. How did you go about that? And, and just kind of give us some insight, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if it's like what you mentioned earlier with just like, you know, we have so much in common all the way down to our childhoods were similar, you know, and somehow, some way we all happen to be like Richmondites, you know, we, we already have so much like history, even if it's not like directly in contact, uh, which is very interesting. But yeah, I mean, the dynamic, it's, um, 
we're all type A, I'd say. Like, we all have strong opinions. We're all stubborn. Um, but we're all very aligned on getting to the root questions, getting to the root answers. Like, just earlier today, actually, we, uh, we were talking about just some questions about how to best hold our, our runway. Uh, and we, we spent like an hour just talking about it, going back and forth and, you know, getting like, you know, the whys of the whys of the why and, and trying to drill down into, you know, the best way forward here. And I think we're all, you know, we're pretty entrenched with our opinions and, you know, but the focus was always on like, what makes the most sense for quant base moving forward. So it sounds like maybe first principles, like that's something that's really core to you guys, really figuring out what the true problem is and how to solve that and being true to that instead of maybe your opinion, which is interesting. I want to understand more about the the strategies um, because I think some of them are really interesting. Um, I, I was looking at your website and one of them was the Nancy Pelosi tracker. Um, another one was, like you mentioned, the Reddit uh, Reddit tracker. Can you talk about some of the more popular ones and and, and uh, what they're what they're all about? Maybe hard to believe, but uh, it's the Pelosi tracker and the Wall Street Bets fund that generate the kind of the most clicks and the most engagement for uh, for Quantbase. But you know they're by far some of the the lowest amount of AUM that we get. So our theory here is that these these kind of fun uh, funds get people on the site, and they're like, oh, these guys are these guys are funny, and they check out some of the other funds that we have, some of the the killer data that we have. We kind of we show like. A lot of like statistical analysis, annualized returns, sharp ratio, all that stuff. We do a deep dive into every fund's thesis, their weaknesses, uh, some key facts, and just things that we found from uh, just things that we personally have found about the uh, about the fund uh, his, uh, funds historical data and uh, how it interacts with the market. And so these these people come to the site, and uh, it's uh, a, a good time to say that nothing we uh, we say here is financial advice or investment advice. But a lot of these folks come and they check out our leveraged flagship fund. I think that drives, I want to say, like 75 to 80% of our AUM. And by the way, I don't think we, we've mentioned the, uh, the website yet uh, all this time. It's getquantbase.com. Yeah, everyone should definitely check that out because there are some really interesting uh, strategies that you have on there. It's interesting how some of the strategies are almost like marketing how they, they bring in some people, but people are putting money in, into some other strategies that are maybe more fundamental, um, like you mentioned. So I know that Sam was talking about um, at your ambition, Thomas. Um, you talk about how you want to make this a, a decacorn. I'm curious about your exit strategy. So you're you know early right now, um, but what do you want to, uh, to accomplish basically with, with this company and how far do you want to go? We're going full IPO is, is the plan. Um, we think the market we're tackling here with making high-risk investing effortless is just huge. Uh, when you think about the market cap of, of some of these assets, you know, Bitcoin and wine and fine art, you know, it's the next you know, 10 to 20 to $30 trillion in assets coming online and becoming available to investors. And having that in one place and, and passive automated smart portfolios where regular investors can get access to uh, that through just taxable accounts, regular investing, or the retirement, their 401ks, is just a massive market on its own. Um, I know we talked about a lot. We talked about the company. We talked about your your stories. Is there anything that we missed that you would like to, you know, kind of share um, about Quantbase? I think the main thing is just, uh, you know, at 
getquantbase.com. Feel free to email us at, you know, hello at getquantbase uh, with new strategy ideas. We're always looking for um, different ways we can use data-driven you know, research and develop awesome investment strategies. And a lot of these we develop uh, from published quant research papers. And um, some of these are just the really technological problems like the NFT fund and crypto indices where it's it's simple market exposure, but the challenge there is really getting it all in one place and in an optimized portfolio. So um, yeah, we're, we're launching new funds all the time. So I'd like to start with Alan. And um, I know, Alan, you mentioned that like, you know, you wanted to, to create your own startup. You wanted to, to get into this. And that's why whenever you came across um, QuantBase, you were really interested. And so I think the question is in entrepreneurship, do you think it's more important to be courageous or intelligent? Oh, 100% like uh, courageous. But as long as, as long as you can know, like, as long as you are able to, I don't know, be humble, be okay with being wrong and being, and having that like, uh, I mean, it takes a little bit of courage, I think, to say that you're wrong and that you need to, you don't know the answer, you need to find it, right? It's like, if you add all that up, right, that builds intelligence. Like intelligence is something that you can develop, you know, knowledge, intelligence. There are things I think you can learn. Uh, Courage you can learn too, but I think it's a prerequisite to to what comes after. Perfect. And how about you, Thomas? What do you think? You know, I think that's really the beauty of co-founders is I started with thinking, oh yeah, intelligence, no brainer. Because I was thinking the main danger would be, you know, you're working too long on something that doesn't work. Um, and not catching that and just wasting your time. Um, but, and just what Alan said there, I think I've changed my mind. It's, it's better to be all courageous than to be all intelligent. Cause I think, you know, if you're spending all your time calculating and reading and, and trying to figure out the next right step and you just never do it, um, you, you're just as, as dead anyways. This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and share this episode. Once again, if you're interested in investing in this company, you can find a link to their fundraising page in the description below. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who's interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at seekingstartups.com. Thank you, and until next time, keep investing in the future.